podcast fam. Dr. Ted Prince is the CEO and founder of Perth Leadership, a research-based company which provides programs to senior executives in large corporations worldwide, focusing on behavioral finance and leadership and business acumen and leadership, utilizing innovative new approaches. Ted sees himself as a global citizen, having grown up in the UK, Australia, and the United States. He's proud of his wide experience in many organizations, continents, and subject areas. He's a keen runner, writer, reader, and contributor. He has written a blog for many years, run several companies, written several books, and we're honored to have him on today's show. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. Whoa. That's right. I am your host, Con Austin. My co-host is the one, the only, the very late Michael Dees. <laughs> what is up, man? Never miss an opportunity to throw me under the bus. <laughs> uh, never. As long as I've known you. Uh, never, man. No. Uh, where'd you go? So usually our podcast, we record it in the evenings, yep. and usually it's like bang bang. As soon as as soon as work's over, we hop right into it, get going. But I noticed on the calendar it was pushed back a little bit, probably because this is like typical busy season at the scooter dealership. I assume I'm trying yep. to get in yep. your head. Yep, you're right. And so I was like, all right, I think I've got enough time to squeeze in some side hustle. I, I do some grocery delivery and stuff like that, and so I booked some deliveries. <laughs> so you like legit went to work? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. So the first time I've been doing this for a couple months and the, for the first time ever, like I went to the delivery address and it was completely wrong, <laughs> completely wrong <laughs> on a podcast recording. Night. Yeah. Oh, well, so like good. I ended up uh, down the street at some hotel and was supposed to be at an apartment complex in Midtown and, and that totally <laughs> threw me off. That was the 15 minutes. Okay. But anyway. Well, you were right. So I did push back this recording a little bit because I was expecting it to be a little bit busier today, but it was cold outside. So I figured yeah, like, it got real cold at the end yeah. of the day. So maybe that maybe that's what had the impact. But you guys, super excited to get in today's episode. But before we do, definitely want to give love to our sponsors, baby. The GNV Commercial Advisors at Collier's Gainesville. Gainesville is growing every day and no one knows that better than the GNV Commercial Advisory Team at Collier's Gainesville. They help businesses and investors of all sizes buy, sell, lease, and manage their properties in North Central Florida. The GNV Commercial Advisory Team has the most local experience and, and expertise in town, excuse me, plus the resources of a global firm to get your commercial real estate deal done. Ready to get started on your next commercial project, Gainesville? See what they can do for you at colliers.com slash Gainesville. That's right. And podcast fam, if you own a business and want to get your message in front of Gainesville's incredible business owners and professionals, we have easy and affordable pricing options. And you can check out all of the phenomenal local businesses that are fueling our mission at whoagnv.com forward slash sponsors. That's right, y'all. If you are interested in being a sponsor, hit me up directly at Colin at whoagnv.com. Did you notice that we changed those email addresses this week? It's about time. That was pretty good. I always kind of wondered about that. Hey, like, oh, why don't we have whoagnv.com email addresses? Well, we do. Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N at whoagnv.com. Um, we would definitely appreciate your sponsorship. You want to get in front of those business owners, baby? Hit us up. We will do it all up. You ready to go? Let's do it. All right. Today on the show, my friends, we have Dr. Ted Prince, CEO and founder of Perth Leadership. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Colin. <laughs> so I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you, my friend. And let me let me just kind of like set the stage a little bit, because so I actually met Ted uh, the year before last when I went to uh, a mentor mentee dinner um, that Darren Cook invited me to. And I got to see Ted speak there. I got to ask a bunch of questions. It was, it was really, really great. And then this year, uh, Darren invited me to be a part of his mentor program, um, his, his mentorship program. I was a mentee. And at the end of this program, like I got to have a couple of one-to-ones with Ted. It was very enlightening, definitely eye-opening, and uh, just just a wealth full of knowledge. And the entire time, 
that we were speaking, I'm thinking to myself, man, I really want to know this guy's story. I want to know this guy's story. So I invited Ted on the show to come and share his story. So Ted, like I'm, I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, man, hit us with it. Like I want, I want to know how you got your start in business, entrepreneurship, leadership, and uh, you know what, what brought you to Gainesville? All of it, my friend. Well, you know what? Once I talk, you know, this might be too much information. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's okay. It's a little bit too much there, Ted, right? <laughs> hey, that doesn't bother me. Well, I, I'm English, and English uh, are good talkers. Usually we talk better if we've got a cup of tea in front of us. So it, I don't uh, sparkling counts, water, I mean. Sparkling water. It's a little bit healthy, which is... Kind of worrisome, but you know. I'm pretty sure I have a stash of Earl Grey in there somewhere. But you know. uh, do you? Yeah, that's, that's still healthy. It's like I was saying to Colin, you know, I didn't have breakfast this morning. He said, "Did you have lunch?" I said, "No," and I didn't. You know, he didn't ask me why, but I was about to tell him that eating is very unhealthy. It's very bad for you, right? You, you got to look at the, you know, the other side of things. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So eating anything is unhealthy for you. Well, if it's unhealthy, if, if it's like good, it's obviously unhealthy, right? Unhealthy stuff is bad for you. Food is unhealthy, right? Okay. So as long as you keep off food, you'll be fine, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that probably counts uh, Earl, Earl Grey, right? Probably. Uh, amongst that, right? Got it. But anyway, yes, I've been around. Uh, as you detect, this is not a Brooklyn accent, right? <laughs> when I uh, came from Australia many years ago, I moved from the capital of Australia, uh, which is called Canberra, and it's about the same size as Gainesville, believe it or not, although it's the capital of Australia. And when I moved to New York, where I went to New York first of all, I'd often see Australians, they'd come and visit me, and I'd always joke that the apartment, the block I lived in, in New York, probably had more people than Canberra, right? So that, that was a big, big change, right? Yeah. That was uh, um, unusual, <laughs> particularly as uh, when I moved to Australia as a young kid, uh, I moved to a farm in the outback. And uh, that was interesting. You know, it, it, on the farm in the outback, you'd have, of course, all dirt roads, and sometimes you'd be driving on a dirt road in a truck. And if you saw a truck coming to you from the opposite direction, it would have been the height of impoliteness not to stop and talk to them. You wouldn't have to know them. In fact, you normally didn't. So they had a truck, you would stop, and they'd probably have a load of sheep, and then you'd say to them, wow, that's a fine load of sheep you got there, right? And they'd say, yeah, what are you doing with them? You know, I'm taking them to the market. How much are you gonna get from, right? This is the sort of talk that I went through, right? And it was a very big change when I came to the US, New York, right? So, you know. (laughs) How many people in the US have you asked what they're doing with their sheep? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. Uh, so, so I'm going to ask you stuff again. I hope I don't embarrass <laughs> you. Okay. What's the population of the U.S.? 350 hey, million. Hey, boy, God, genius. Uh, genius. Uh, what's the population of Australia? 30 million. Wow. My God. You're un- unbelievable. Okay. We're going to have to make this a bit harder, right? Um, how many sheep are there in Australia? 350 million. I, I think you've mugged up on this. You've seen this before. It's, it's actually, it's funny <laughs> enough, it varies de- depending on whether it's a good year or a famine, you know, like a, a drought year. But in a good year, it's about 350 million. No so, kidding. <laughs> so, okay, I, I'm just going to have to ramp this up here. Um, do you know what the... Uh, most uh, plentiful animal is in Australia other than a kangaroo? Um, The koala. Not bad, but it isn't one of them. Mm. Got four legs, I'll give you that. Oh, it's only got four. I was going to say spiders, but you said. (laughs) Well, they're probably the most. (laughs) But keep on. I don't don't know. Uh, Camels. Camels. Hmm. How, the, how do we get on this subject? <laughs> I don't, so I'm going to bring this back around. So you used to live in Australia. 
<laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Okay, so how long, so did you move to Australia? You weren't born there, or were you? Um, no, I wasn't. Okay, so you weren't, but where were you born? I was born in England. In England, where in mm-hmm. England? I was born in London. Okay. Mm-hmm. I used to live just north of London. Oh, you did? In the Cambridgeshire area. Yeah, yeah for a few years. Um, it was Ely, a little town called Ely. So, um, anyway, so you moved from England to Australia at what age? At uh, 12. At 12, okay. And you were in Australia for how long? Like, your I entire I lived in life? Australia for about 20 years. Okay. I went to university. You did? Went to school, went to university. Okay. And so what brought you to the United States, and what year was that? It was uh, 85, and... I was in government. I had a job in government. And uh, in fact, I was the head of IT for the Social Security Agency. Okay. And uh, so I had put in, I had implemented a total transformation of the Social Security system. So I became very well known in Australia. And I left the government when I was offered a job in New York. It was a small Australian public company that wanted to start off a company in New York. And they'd read too many books saying, that said you should go global. Mm. So they hired me to come to New York and I started off a company in New York, which was probably a very bad decision on their part because I'd never started up a company anywhere and I didn't know anything about running a company. Not that they'd ever stopped me doing anything, right? But yeah, that's uh, how it's So they just placed you right in New York? Yeah. At what age? Um, I was uh, 32. Okay, so so how long did, like what was that process like? And how long long were you doing that? uh, Well, I started the company, I sold it about uh, seven years later, then went on and uh, ran a public company. Okay. I was headhunted into a public company in Boston. And there were a few, things along the way. So I ran the company in Boston for about uh, six years. Oh, and so you say you didn't know anything about running a company. I didn't. You started this company in New York. This, IT, it was IT? It was a software company. This so- software mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And then somebody tracked you down, like wanted you to be the CEO of a company seven years later of a public company? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, what was that company? Uh, it was called Insight. Uh, it was a small, when I say it was small, it was about uh, 40 million. Um, we had offices all over the US. We, I love we, it when 40 million is small. Small is 40 it's million. It's funny, yeah. Small. I always do that because you know you talk to someone who runs a normal company in New York <laughs> and you say 40 million. It's a, I, I, never, I didn't know you could get that small. 40 million, <laughs> my God, that's micro, nano, right? So what, what, was the, what was the company? What was the premise, what they do? Um, actually built a, a archiving software and our archiving software was used for the first time uh, to make invoices digital. In those days, you know, that was a long time ago. What, what years, invoices. do you remember the years? Yeah, yeah, I, I went into that company in 1995 and uh, I was there for six years. And what they did was, it, it was a turnaround. So I was brought in to turn around the company. And um, yeah. They, Why, because it was failing or because, yeah, yeah, yeah it was it, struggling? It was struggling very badly. So they, and, they brought in the turnaround guy, uh, me, me, right? So, I mean, you, so you must have gotten the leadership experience necessary in your own business for seven years, right? Because why were you hunted down to be the CEO of this company? Well, I, like, you, you mostly get headhunted because people can make money out of you. They don't know if you're a good leader or not. They don't really care, right? If you get headhunted to go into a company, the only thing the headhunters are, are, are worried about, they get compensated on your salary, right? So actually, when you, you these are little known secrets, right? But when you get headhunted, the headhunter doesn't care whether you're a good leader or not. All they care about is, is the board going to buy him? Because if he buys you, he gets 30% of your first year's salary, right? And he gets, uh, at the end of the year, he gets another 30% of your bonus, right? So what, they re- what a headhunter really wants is not a good leader. 
what they want is someone articulate that can sell themselves to the board, right? <laughs> if you get a good leader, but he's not articulate, he can't sell himself to the board. Now think of that every time you look at all these suits, right? Running companies, right? All right, so where That's was how they that's... got there? Like, like uh, I don't know, Marissa Mayer in Yahoo or Adam Newman in um, WeWork, right? Okay. Who is unbel- in Israeli, uh, unbelievably articulate, a total you know bomb, but it didn't really matter. He he ran he he raised six billion, right? So so I mean, what was your mindset after you had been headhunted? Like, all right, come come be the CEO of this company. I mean, were you thinking uh, I'm very articulate? I'll be able to sell myself to the board, or are you thinking, oh, I can do this? I can come in here and turn this company around. Well, that I thought, so I had no problem with that. But did I think I was a good leader? No. No, I, I think if you How old were you at the time? Uh, probably 38 or 40, something like that. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's my age. I definitely think I have some improvement to do. <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, as you know... Better, I, better than when you were 20, though, 25, right? Well, There's yeah, maybe, progress along Maybe the yes, way. maybe no. But, you know, I often tell people... You know, we've done some coaching together and yeah. mentoring, right? And I'll often ask people, just like you just asked me, what age are you? So I'll often ask them, what age are you? So maybe you tell me you're 40, right? So my first response is going to be, well, you, you've got another 55 years of life. Right. What are you going to be doing? And someone says, I don't know. It's a hell of a long time to be bored, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Number one, right? And number two, if you know it all now, you don't have anything to learn. You're better off starting off learning, not, knowing nothing, right? Because then you learn something. If you know too much when you're 20, what the hell you got to learn? You're not gonna have any fun, right? Yeah. All right, so you step into this company. You worked there for how long? Six years. Six years. So did you save it? Did you get it turned around? I turned it around and then the board fired me uh, during is I did two I did two contracts three year contracts, and they fired me after they didn't fire me because it was the end of my contract. They fired me. It was in the uh, inter, the the uh, dot com bust, mm. and our stock suddenly plummeted. Mm. So when you're a CEO of a public company, once your stock goes down, you're history. You're toast, right? And uh, that's normal. Yeah. So that's so normal. what do you prefer? Do you prefer being the CEO of a public or a private company? Uh, well, in all your years of experience. No, it, actually, you know what the real issue is? The real issue is not so much whether it's uh, private or public. The real issue is do you own it or not? Now, mm-hmm. number one, if you're running a company, uh, running a public company is approximately 1,000 times harder than running a private company. There's absolutely no comparison because as a public company CEO, you've got the SEC breathing down your neck, all your shareholders want to sue you, the more the merrier, right? Mm-hmm. And there's all these laws that big companies don't have to obey because they've got a lot of money. They can pay off the SEC or consultants. They can pay off their lawyers. But if you're in a small public company, you don't have enough money to pay anything off. So running a small public company, running any public company, is a thousand times harder than a private company, and running a small public company is a thousand times harder than running a big public company. Because in a big com- public company, you got a problem, right? Someone comes and says, I don't like the way you've accounted for your revenue this year. Well, if you're in a big company, you get the CFO, you say, put a team together, right? He puts a team of lawyers and accountants, they figure the answer out, they come back, say, we got the answer, we've had it checked, it costs us a million dollars, here's the answer, bye-bye. If you're in a small company, you gotta do that on your own, mm. right? Big difference. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, it doesn't matter where you are, if, you, if you're in a, a small or a big, cup, a, 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 a big company, um, the issue is, uh, uh, Purpose, self-worth, mm. right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're an, you're you're an owner, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in a small public company or if you're a small company of any sort, there's two ways you can be there. You can be the owner, or you can be an employee. If you're an employee, you're a wage slave, right? If you're an owner, you're not. It's risky, but you're not a wage slave, right? So there's a very big difference. Where do you want to be, right? Where do you want to be when you grow up, right? It's a big issue. 
And, you know, I, we talked about this, but when I coach people, another thing I often ask them when I, I see them, first question, I, I don't know whether I ask you this, uh, and, and it wouldn't have made sense in your case, but the first question I'll usually ask is, um, what do you want to, do you want to be a CEO or not, hmm. right? And I don't give a damn whether you want to be a CEO or not. It doesn't matter to me, but it makes a difference to what you're going to do. Because if you want to be a CEO, that's a very different kettle of fish. It's a di very different trajectory than if you don't want to be a CEO. Because if you don't want to be a CEO, you don't have to take responsibility. You can be footloose and fancy three, but you're going to have to do as you're told the rest of your life. I can't do that. I just cannot. I was never up, not even in the government. The reason I transformed Social Security was I was, when I get started, I'm a lunatic, right? I don't do what anyone tells me, but I'm so damn good at it, you can't stop me because it's going too well. But if you put me in a stage where I have to do what I'm told, I decided in my 20s, I am never gonna work for anyone. Because the people I work for, even by the time I was in my mid-20s, I found the people I work for, it sounds very arrogant, but it's the truth, I found them mostly very stupid. Not academically stupid or, or intellectual stupid, but I found that I couldn't work with most people um, because I would have ideas and I could break through with those ideas. They wouldn't go for them, they'd be bureaucrats. So I don't like bureaucrats, right? Mm -hmm. You either do it or you're done. If you're gonna do it, get it done. If you don't, what do they say? Lead, follow, or get out the fucking way, right? <laughs> That's what I believe, right? <laughs> so you got to think, where do you want to be? Do you want to lead? Do you, I don't care what you want to do. It's all good. Leading, following, getting out the way. They're all good. But you've got to know where you're going to be. What do you want to do? And if you don't know where you want to be, then you're really screwed, right? Yeah. But if you know where, you know, I, I always tell people, I told this to you, I'm, I'm sure, but in life there's only one thing that counts. Actually, there's two. You've got to have a sense of purpose and you've got to have a partner, right? Now, it's not because I'm into marriage, although I've been married for 33 years, right? But, you know, the, the, it's, it's very clear. And unless you have a partner, your life chances go down by 90%, right? You're going to have mental health problems. You're going to commit suicide. You're just going to be unhappy. It goes on and on, right? So those are the, but a, a sense of purpose is very important. So somebody who steps into a CEO role who has been headhunted, like recruited, come in here and, and help us save this company mentality, like can, or maybe did you, like a CEO, did, did, did you have purpose or were you still at an age where you're like really trying to like figure it out? Uh, I had purpose, but I was still trying to figure it out. Okay, so it was a little I, bit I, of both. You felt like, okay, I do have purpose in this position, being, being when, here. When I went into Social Security, I was 30, and I was brought in to head up IT for the whole of Australia. I'd never been in IT. I knew nothing about it. The head of the uh, agency, for me, he was God when he brought me in, right, uh, said to me, social security in Australia is a mess. Um, can you fix it? And I told him, yes, I didn't hesitate because I knew I could do it and I wanted the challenge, right? Mm. I like that sort of stuff. I don't like going into routine things. So that for me was great. What I didn't realize, and I, I solved the problem uh, in a very good way, um, but of course I didn't own social security. Right, I could, as I did, transform the whole of the social security system in Australia. But when I came out, I still got the same pay as I did when I went in. Right, I couldn't go back and say I want a thousand percent in equity. Right, and actually, even if you're in a private sector company, you don't get the equity unless it's very unusual circumstances. So you're not building up the worth that you, the value that you've put into it. It's all about value. And actually, it, it's not just financial value. You, you've got to ask yourself sometime, what is my life worth? And I'm not just talking in a financial sense, right? You have value. We all have value. What is my value? How am I going to realize that value? 
You, you might really, and I'm not again talking necessarily in a financial sense, but if three seconds before you die at 96, you can't say, I got the value, I achieved the value, then you f***ed up. You didn't get, get to where you need to go, right? And probably most people are not in that situation. Who t- you know, when I was, in it, when, you know, I, I tell people when I went into my first CEO job, no one ever said to me, look, if you're going to be a CEO, these are the sort of things you've got to do. You, you learn that on the job, right? Most people fail, right? The first time you get into a leadership position is your first time. Maybe you do it, maybe you get it, maybe you don't, right? Most people don't, particularly if it's a more consequential job. They'll come in, f*** it up, or make either lose money or something, and then you never get the opportunity again because your reputation will precede you. Any headhunter will have checked you out and said, yeah, I'd checked to the guy in the previous job, he f***ed up. You um, usually only get one chance. Yeah, done. Right. But the biggest situation is not the CEO job. Where are you going to be three seconds before you die? Hmm. Have you thought of that? I, that's, that's rhetorical, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Most people haven't. But if you don't know where you want to be before you die, how the hell can you decide what trajectory you're going to go on in the meantime unless it's just a random walk and you, you okay, I've got this job, I've been fired, I'm, I'll go to this job or, you know, I'm making good money now, uh, blah, 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 right? It's, it, then life becomes a, a random walk. Some people are fine with that. I'm not knocking it. I'm just not one of those people. Yeah, so... Did you spend a lot of time really planning out your your life then? Like, did you know where you were going and the steps to get there? No, I had a very bad uh, childhood. I was in uh, kids' homes. From the, I was abandoned by my, my parents when I was uh, four. And I was in kids' homes in England and then in Australia until I was 18. So I had no idea. You should have right? started with that instead of the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's super interesting. There's a big advantage if you start off life like that. Yeah. Because you, Why? Can, you can never go any lower. Mm. If you've never had any parents, no money, no one is interested in you, everything is a positive, right? Everything that ever happened to me was a positive. I only ever went up. So I could look down and say, this is a good life, Right. I had, I didn't start great, but God was good to me. I kept on going up. I got where I wanted to go. Actually, I'm a thousand or a million times luckier than people who, who were born rich, like Trump, who went downhill, right? You know, there are people like that too. I think there are two types of people in life. There are the people who start low and go high, and there's the people who start high and go low. And the people who start high have a, a good you know they have a good start then they fuck it up uh they get divorced they commit suicide they have mental health problems right they end up unhappy that's not a good life right that's how you got to look at it isn't there a third person well uh, the person who starts high reaches low and then goes to an ultimate high because of the low do you know people like that I mean, I've, you you hear stories all the time. I mean, you definitely hear people who, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely I definitely hear people like that. Entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that I admire, even people who like they were they were doing well, and then maybe they go completely bankrupt and hit hit rock bottom, and then from there, like start the climb all over. But they're so much but better you know, for it. For me. Um, that doesn't make sense. You know, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you start off, you have a good upbringing, you go to a good school, then you start something, you fuck up, you hit the low. But the way I would look at it, at it is you always had a family. Mm. Uh, you always had people to look after you. When you came home, your mother cuddled you, right? You start off like I did, That's none of that exists. I didn't know what a family was till I got married the first time. My first marriage was a disaster and I was a problem because I didn't know how families worked. I'd never seen a family. I'd never seen people having affection, stuff like that. So for me, if you 
if you had a good family background and emotional stability, you got it all when you were a kid. Okay. Right? Everything else is, you know, like a bonus. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so you go down. Doesn't matter. You come through kids' homes when you're a kid. You come out thinking you're right? You think you have no self-esteem because everyone tells you in group homes, you're You're here because no one wants you. You were abandoned. There's a reason you were abandoned, right? So you grow up between the years of four and 18 thinking that you're the world's biggest piece of So when you go out, you have to get from there, right? I went to university. It was a total accident. And um, I was very lucky, incredibly lucky, right? I didn't know, the day I walked into university, I didn't know what a university was. I got into a line and the, I'd been told, I'd got a telegram, telegram, right? Turn up at this university. I had a girlfriend, I was just out of the kids' home and the girl, I, I told the girlfriend I got this telegram. And what is it? It's something about a university, what's a university? And she said, just go. <laughs> so I went, and there was a line, a registration line. So the girl, in front, I was talking to the girl in front of me, and she said, um, so what degree are you going to do? I said, what's the degree? And then, and then I suddenly realized this probably sounds very stupid. So I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm going to do arts. And, um, and then she said, well, what subjects are you going to do? I don't know. And so I said, what subjects are you going to do? And she said, well, I'm going to do uh, philosophy, French, psychology, and political science, right? So we went through the line. I got to the head of the line, and the guy at the head of the line said, what degree are you going to do? I said, arts. He said, what subjects are you going to do? I said, French, psychology, political science, and philosophy, <laughs> right? That's how I started, right? But I didn't know. But actually, it served me well. Right, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so, I mean, I want to jump back to the story a little bit because I want to get to I, I before the end of this episode, I want to get to where you're at today and you know your company, Perth Leadership, and everything. So, so about four, you were at like forty years old, you said, when you were running this company, and you were there for six years. What? So, what was after that? I might have been a bit older, fifty, when I finished, but okay. uh, I started up. Um, my current company, Perth Leadership Institute. Okay, and what drove that? Like, why, why that? I'd had a, an idea for, you know, I'd, by this time I'd had five or six CEO jobs. And I've been on a lot of boards of entrepreneurial companies. Or, or That's my side hustle, right? You, you run the company, but your side hustle is you're on a, a, a series of boards. What I noticed, uh, being on all these boards, and, of course, on a board, your job is to hire the CEO and maybe fire him. And what I, I noticed after a, a bunch of time was there seemed to be a pattern. And the pattern was um, you get a CEO, you'd hire a CEO. And, you know, once you hire a CEO, you always fall in love with them, right? You always fall in love with people you hire, right? They're always Jesus Christ. So you'd hire Jesus Christ, the CEO, and then a year later you'd fire him. I started, after this had happened 10 times, I'd start to wonder, well, you know, when we hired this guy, he was Jesus Christ. And we all thought he was wonderful. So how come we fired him? Because he's charismatic, he's articulate, he's ambitious, he's smart, he's driven. What isn't there to like? And I realized, it, it, it sounds simple, but it wasn't for me anyway. And what I realized after a period of time was the reason we fired all these guys, they didn't make money. Duh, you gotta make money, right? So I started to wonder then, uh, well, there are tests for leadership, but they don't do that. They were never designed to see whether or not you can make money. I wonder if you can devise a test, psychometric tests, that will tell you reliably whether someone will make money based on their behavior, not based on whether or not they'd run 10 companies that all made money, right? Could you do a behavioral test? So what I did is um, I started figuring out, I started doing some CEO coaching, 
And um, I had ideas about it. And I had a friend um, I talked to. Actually, he was at a university. And he told me, Ted, you should write a book about it. Well, I had been a working stiff my whole life. I hadn't been an academic. Well, I've got a PhD, but I wasn't an academic. And the guy said, well, you should write an article. And I told him, don't be stupid. I can't do that. I'm not an academic. <laughs> and he said, no, no, give it a shot. So I wrote an article, submitted it at MIT, and they published it immediately. So I thought, wow, this, this is a bit easier than I thought. <laughs> and the, the, this friend had been telling me, you should write a book. So I wrote a couple of chapters, called up McGraw-Hill. They asked for a copy, I said, and they, they published it, right? Just like that. So I said, wow. So this was the nub of the matter. I'd written the book. I was feeling pretty good about the theory. There's a theory here, right? And I got a call one day from a professor at Columbia University. In fact, he was the head of the entrepreneurship school. And he said, I, I read your article at MIT, and it's very intriguing. Would you come down and give us a lecture? So I, I, I was down here at that stage. I went up to Columbia, gave him the lecture, and at the end of the lecture, he, he came up and said, it was brilliant. And then he asked me a question. And I had always known someone was going to be ask, ask me this question. I didn't want them to ask it because I knew I didn't have an answer. The question he asked me, which I'd been expecting and I was hoping I could avoid until I died, was this is a brilliant book and it's a brilliant thesis. Do you have a test? And, of course, I didn't. It was just a theory, right? It was a good theory. It was an intriguing theory. It's why he invited me down. But bullshit. It was, a t it was theory. Theories are bullshit, right? So on the spot, I thought about this in that very second. And I said to myself, I've either got to put up or shut up. Mm. So I put up. I'd made money in my previous jobs, particularly in the CEO, the public company job. And I tried to get venture capital, but the idea was too wacky. It was way out there. But that never stopped me. So I decided I was going to spend my own money, which I did. It took me uh, five years. I, I funded the company myself. I put together a team of 10 to 15 people uh, from people all around the US. And I devised a set of psychometric assessments that I then used for the last, I've used them for the last 15 years to do assessments, mainly with big companies. For, you know, I've, I've, Coca-Cola's been a client. BMW and so on and so on. Uh, but actually, I, I owe a lot to that guy because if he hadn't challenged me, uh, I would have comfortably gone on just relying on my book and publishing the odd article. And that's bullshit. I'm very against theory. You got all these people with big ideas, suits, academics, right? It's all bullshit, right? <laughs> if you haven't done it, you haven't done it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why did you need that kick in the pants from the Columbia professor? That's a good question. I, I think, you know, I think it's a good question. I think the problem was my life until then had been too comfortable. I think I'd had a series of successful CEO jobs. I'd made money. When you're a CEO, everyone bows and scrapes, even if they think they don't, right? And you enjoy that. You enjoy the adulation. Who doesn't, right? And so you get comfortable. I was mm. comfortable. I'd done too well. I was comfortable. And actually, he wasn't nasty. He was quite nice. But actually, it was, I could feel the sarcasm dripping out of him, although he wasn't being sarcastic. He just, it was a natural, honest, courteous question. And he, he wasn't trying to be sardonic. He was just being honest. And he, bang, hit me right between the eyes. And he was right. And I recognize immediately he's got me. I've either got to put up or shut up. But you said you had feared this question for, for yeah. a while. Yeah, I was doing what everyone else does, right? Who doesn't lean back and take the, 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 the path of least resistance, right? Okay. I'm, I'm no different to anyone else. You know, if you've got a path of least resistance and it's easy, what the hell? Most people do that, right? Most people won't take the hard route. You try coaching people on their future. You try testing them. 
We te- our test is uncannily accurate. It's unbelievable. On our tests, I can show you, I can prove to you, 12% of people make money, 88% of people don't. In my vocabulary, they're losers. You talk to those people, all right, and I'm right, they don't want to know. Number one, they don't want to know. And number two, if you tell them what they've got to do, approximately 10% will do it. The other 90% won't. <laughs> That's funny they said they don't want to know. Like, Because you said, I'm sitting here, here listening to you. I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of scared to take this test. I don't, I don't want to be told I'm never going to make money or anything, you know? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, that, but that's yeah. true, huh? People are like, are, they're afraid. They're afraid of the well, they're I, afraid I, of the result. You know who most of all doesn't want to take the test. We we've tested thousands of people, and of course we test CEOs all the time. Big suit CEOs, mm. they particularly don't want to know, mm. because if you're a CEO, most of the time you don't get to be CEO because you're bright. You get to be CEO because you marry the boss's daughter. You lick the right, right. Um, <laughs> You know how to manage up, right? You might be smart. That doesn't mean you, just because you're smart doesn't mean to say you're going to make money. One thing our data shows conclusively, we've got a lot of data, I can show you conclusively that the higher your level of education, the lower your business acumen, right? And if you have uh, a PhD, it's very bad. Your, your level of business acumen is ultra low. But you have a PhD. Yeah, so I, I, I'm the same as everyone else. I'm not claiming. You know what? I often tell people, I can prove to you right now that you're a loser. <laughs> Great. You, you, this is just, this is just what Mike's you, been waiting for this moment this this is, his entire life. This is, just, this is just what you wanted to hear, uh, right? Okay. So do you want me to prove? Yeah, please. Okay, please. Make me uh, feel great about myself. If you're a winner... You wouldn't be here talking to me. You would be in the south of France, having gone there on your private yacht, staying in Trump world or something, right? Mm. And what's more... (laughs) He's not wrong. Is is that right? (laughs) And what's more, if I was a winner, I would be there with you. We would both be there, right? Now, you know, I'm joking, but how many people are Buffett? How many Buffets do you get in the world, Right. You so, say, so do you that? find so do you find like when people ask what's your definition of success, do you find that question to be like dumb and stupid? Because I mean, it's almost like, um, I mean, you just said you just said we were both losers. What if what if I feel that I have achieved a level of success by my definition of success? Well, I would... Uh, you can still say, well, you're still a loser. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Okay. Actually, what I would say is, how do you define value? And then I would, once you told me your answer, I would ask you, have you achieved that value? I don't care what the value is. It could be financial, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. It could be you run a nonprofit, and your definition of value is helping poor people, helping kids who have been abandoned, Right. If you say that's your definition of value and you've achieved it, then you're there. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, it isn't about What's finance. your definition of value? Uh, it's doing things that are unusual. Mm. Uh, Interesting. Uh, with the way we, uh, we have a, a definition as we use in our test. Now, I, if I tell you this, I've got to kill you. You know what I mean? Okay. But we, we have uh, questions, right? And the questions that we, we ask are something like, people who know you well would think that you always do something unique, totally unique. Is that true? I'd ask you, have you done something? Do you normally do something totally unique? And incidentally, I'm I'm not being facetious. Yeah. And by total, I mean by unique. I mean unique. It's the only thing in the world. Right? Yeah. So I ask people, do you do things that are totally unique? Now, there are very few people like that, which is why not many people do well in SS. But the people who answer yes or mainly yes uh, they got something unique. Now, it may not be financial. It may not be product. It may not be commercial. It could be spiritual. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. 
what it is. But that's what I want. If someone now, if someone wants to achieve value, you don't have to achieve it. You might be a mother and get a kid, right? It's a different definition of value from right. being unique. Yeah. Mike, what's your definition of value? It's an interesting question. Yeah. I just think of uh, in a more kind of textbook sense, like like what are you, what are you producing? What is your output versus the cost of of doing so? Like whether it's it's an investment or financial or it's intrinsic, it's like what what is what does it cost you to do something, and how much can you give in response to that? But that's a very like Merriam-Webster type, like yeah. So what's but what but for you? How do like the same way he answered like what's you know so like for me like when you were asking that question saying I'm thinking to myself I was like oh the value for me is uh, absolute absolute freedom the the ability to do what I want when I want whatever and am I there yet no not quite definitely making progress definitely making progress but. But that's it. Like, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I got into entrepreneurship to begin with. Cause I did, again, kind of going back to the bureaucracy. I did not want to be under somebody else's rules. I wanted to be able to make the rules. I wanted to be able to create the, the uniqueness of a company. I wanted to be able to look at business and be like, oh, I'm going to go do something completely opposite. Um, and yeah, like that's, that's what it was for me. And definitely making the, definitely making those steps. But for me, it's freedom, man. It's the freedom to do whatever whenever yeah I agree with that I think that's a, a big definition of value then the issue you have to ask then is the value I'm achieving of freedom is it sustainable right have I got something which is sustainable mm. because Ted's told me I'm going to die in 93 mm. so is this going to go for the next two years or is it going to go for the next 60 years right right that's what I would ask. Because otherwise you've got value and it's not sustainable, and then it's not value. You understand? Absolutely. If it's not sustainable, it's not value. That's really good. I would say that mine's not sustainable yet. Then that's what you've got to work on. Yep, definitely making progress. And, and you know, you, you hardly Robinson Crusoe, right? <laughs> 90, 90% of the people have that exact thing. For most people, their definition of value would be getting a good job. Mm. But, you know, you, you could get fired, right? Um, you could retire. What do you do when you retire? Right? I want to be able to do what I want when I want. Yeah, I want the freedom. Value, but you get to be an To employee. never have to worry about a dime of money ever yeah. again, to never be able to worry about, I want to be able to wake up and be like, all right, I'm going to go on my yacht, south of France, let's go. <laughs> My definition of value, my personal definition, I always wanted to have an impact on the world, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I wanted it, my, my personal definition was, by the time I die, I want to have an impact on the world. I don't care if I make money or not, but I want, after I die, I would want people saying, there's this guy called Ted Prince who lived once. He never made any money, but we still remember him because he did this thing which, for whatever reason, left an impact on us. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's for everyone. It isn't. But, you, you know, you, you get to make up your own definition, right? Just Absolutely. like you have. Absolutely. Right? I love it. The, um, so, I mean, you proved this theory true, right? <laughs> I mean, that's basically what we've discovered through this is that you created this test and, and it works. And so, I mean, now, so now what's happening? I mean, these, these companies, they, they hire you to come in and you, is this something that's just given to the leadership team only? Is it given to CEOs only? Is it given to the entire all, all company? Of the, all of the above. Okay. But um, I've been running the company 20 years. And we almost collapsed during the great financial crisis, but we recovered just, as it was difficult. Now we're going through the same thing again. Our revenue is down 90% because people aren't doing this right now. It's, they view it as being training or leadership development. So this time, it's always good to change your pace, right? Last time, when my revenue went down, I felt I can, 
uh, stick this out. And this is only like revenue went down specifically because of pandemic yeah. issues. Yeah, no one wants to do this right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, the, it, we do a lot of face-to-face training. You can do some of it by Zoom, gotcha. but it isn't the same. Yep. Um, so I was faced, or I have been faced in the last few months with the issue is, well, now the business is not quite collapsed. I'm still getting stuff. I've just got a couple more things in, but it's way down, right? So I've got a couple of choices. I could hope to revive it like I did last time, or I could, you know, I'm always always a big guy to do something new or try something different, right? Mm-hmm. As I told you, what I do is I test executives to see whether or not they're going to make money. And then I work with them to change their behavior so they'll make money. And I realized probably 10 years ago that I'd inadvertently found a new way to rate public companies, to rate the management teams. Because if I can rate you, I can do it on all the management team. And then I can come back and say, yeah, forget about uh, Colin. Uh, I, I looked at everyone in the management team. Um, they're all a bunch of losers. Um, so short them. You understand? Short them. Or if they're the opposite, invest in them. Or if they're somewhere in between. You understand? In mm-hmm. other words, I realized about um, 10 years ago, I had a way of rating public companies and revolutionizing investment. But I couldn't think... The problem I had, I realized pretty quick, you know, people do the assessments. They sit down, well, they don't have paper and, uh, paper and pencil. They do it on the computer, right? But if I give you an assessment, you do it, right? Now, let's say I say, Colin, would you do my assessment? And you say, no fucking way. Why not? Uh, I don't want you knowing about me. I don't want you being able to rate me or tell me what my performance is. You might blackmail me. I don't want to know. I'm scared. You might give it to a future employer, right? So the obvious answer is no one in their right mind is voluntarily going to do an assessment if I ask them to do an assessment, right? They'll shoot me before they'll do that, right? But I'm a runner. I run every day. I get my best ideas when I run. And a few, probably two or three years ago, I was running, and the idea came to me, you know, blinding flash of light, you know, all this sort of shit. And what I realized was there was a simple way around it, but no one had ever used it. You won't do it, right? Ha, who cares? I find one of your employees who you fired three years ago. He knows you very, very well, even intimately, at least psychologically, right? I hire him, I pay him 500 bucks, and I say, here's a test. Do it and imagine you're Colin. You know what? If he does it, he will be more accurate than you are. Because if you do it, you'll want to game it, or you'll want to not want to give me the correct answers, or you want to throw me off the scent. But he won't. He'll tell the truth. All right, let's have Mike do one of me then. (laughs) (laughs) And if I get two people, I can guard against bias or variability. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, but so you have to pay them to do it though? Yeah. Okay. If I can. That's a good business model? Well, let's say I get 10,000 companies paying me a million dollars a year to subscribe to my database. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how many tens of billions that is. Yeah, that's all you need, right? I pay you 500 bucks to do it. It's not even chicken shit. You understand? Mm-hmm. It's less than 1% uh, cost of goods. You've got, a, you've got a margin on it, 99 point whatever percent. So yeah, I can pay you 500 or 1,000. You will be pathetically grateful. I get information. I have the only database in the world which has the psychometrics of every CEO, every top management team, all your vulnerabilities, right, and strengths. I know exactly where you and the team are going to end up, and I can give 
uh, information to investors they never had before because no one has any psychometric data on execus. Never have. They never thought it was relevant. So how long have you been working on this? This is this is the new thing. This is what you're working on now. Yeah, I've, I've and it's I've, only been the last couple of years or so. Or what? No, I've 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 only started working on it since the pandemic. Once I saw the okay. sales going down, uh, I basically said I got to change pace. Even if I get my old business back, it's a marginal business. It's it's good. It's bright. It's got unique technology, but it's marginal. You have got to be honest about these things. If you're doing something marginal. You've, and incidentally, not just commercial. You might be doing some things that are marginal emotionally. Mm. If you're pursuing a losing course, stop it. Do something else. So I started this about three or four months ago. Um, I found uh, an ex-Goldman Sachs woman, just retired, who believes in it. And we've been hitting the big companies and um, I, well, we're being recorded, and I can't tell you the name. No worries. But we have a big, 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 big company uh, that is actively very interested right now. They may be the they may be the only people I ever need. Hmm. I, I, my, actually, my biggest worry right now is they're going to say they want to take the whole investment. I don't want that hmm. because then I think if they want to take it, everyone else wants to take it, and then I'm leaving money on the table. Okay. Anyway, that's what, for better or for worse, that's what I'm doing. Right on. If it fails, that's okay. I tried, right? Yeah. So, I mean, have you ever thought about retiring, or are you one of these guys that's like, I'm going to work until I'm dead? No, I'll be dead. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's an entrepreneur thing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have that sickness, don't we? Don't, don't ever want to stop. So, Mike, you got any last questions, man? I just I think it's fascinating because I hear you tell that um, that database, and I'm like, okay, so you started as uh, being headhunted, and now you could basically be the headhunter now because as you're, you're accumulating all this data, if somebody wanted to say they've got a failing company right now out of the pandemic and they want to identify a CEO to turn it around, they could contact you or a management team, right? Right. Or you could be a private equity guy. You've got a hundred companies in your portfolio. You want to know which ones of them are dogs and which ones are rough diamonds. Mm. We can do that. Hmm. Dang. Super cool. Fascinating. Well, I mean, good luck with the venture, man. Thanks very much. (laughs) We'll give it a shot. If it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it'll have been fun trying, right? Yeah. So in all of your years in business, I mean, you come with a ton of experience. What was was your biggest experience? challenge to date? Uh, I think it was when I moved from the government to the private sector in New York. Okay. I'll give you an example. I got there and I, it was only a small company at that stage and we made our first sell, software. And it was a good sell. It was 50 grand or something, which in those days was a lot of money. In those days, when you had a finance, there was no QuickBooks or Quicken in those days. When you had financial systems, it was all manual, right? So I hired a financial controller or someone, and we made this sale. So I was, I was cock a hoop about it. I was very, very positive, very positive. And I came in one day, and my uh, financial controller, who was an older woman, she's for then in her 50s, uh, she, she came in, just a routine question. Uh, Ted, it's great we made the sale. Um, do you want me to put that in accounts payable? And I looked at her. I didn't know what an accounts payable was. <laughs> That's how stupid I was, because I come from government. And I could see, as I, I, I said to her, probably stupidly, I, I said, well, what's accounts payable? And then I could see immediately. She's like, uh. She was aghast. You know, this guy is my CEO. He doesn't know what a fucking accounts payable is. What, <laughs> what did I? I immediately called up NYU and enrolled in a course. It was the equivalent accounting for dummies or something. Sure. You know, very simple. It gave me what I needed. And, you know, I always tell people, before I became a CEO, I was critically deficient in so many areas. I didn't know about anything in many areas. One of them was accounting. 
No one ever told me you need to know that because how the hell are you going to read a balance sheet? Right? That's what I do in my current job, right? I'm right. looking at your financials, right? And the other thing I never did, which was a critical deficiency, is sales. I never, you know, because people look down on sales. A lot of people think it's a kind of dirty term. Yeah. You're a sales guy. They do. I just wish someone had taken me aside when I was doing my PhD and said, forget all this stuff. It's all bullshit. You need to learn how to do sales. My youngest daughter is a salesperson. I guided her into it for that reason. Because <laughs> I think the best training to be an entrepreneur, there's a lot of training, but one of them is sales. Yeah. Man, it's been super fascinating. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, likewise. You said, you said uh, if anybody wanted to connect with you, like you're on LinkedIn, you got like 25,000 connections on LinkedIn. Yep. That's your platform. Yeah, just look up Ted Prince. So find Ted on yep. LinkedIn. And uh, man, so I got the tie to Darren Cook, but what what brings you to Gainesville like today? Like, why do you live here now or no? Oh yeah, I've been living here for twenty years. Okay, so we, never, we never really got to. Yeah. That. So what brought you here from? Oh, from us from New York via Australia and England. Uh, I had uh, my wife and I. I've been married for thirty three years, but we didn't have kids, and we adopted a kid from the Philippines, as a matter of fact. And I'd, I'd lived in New York long enough. I wanted to live somewhere simpler. And the reason we picked Gainesville, I'm a runner, so running every day is very important to me. And the reason we picked Gainesville is my wife has got a lot of family around here. Okay. Gotcha. And I wanted to live somewhere simple for my son, who's I, now 25. Okay, he's 25 now. So when you talk about there's, there's two type of, types of people, there's those that came from nothing and there's only, they can only go up from there and there's those that have something and they can only go down. How did that affect how you fathered this child? Ooh, good question. Uh, I'd love to say that I was a good father, but I don't think I'm a good father. I never had the nurturing skills. I, I never taught them. I never even thought they're important. My wife brought him up, and she did a brilliant job. But I don't think, I think because of my childhood, I missed out on critical parenting and nurturing skills because I'd never seen it. Hmm. And it was only when I got into my second marriage, I started to realize what a normal emotional environment was like. Hmm. So fortunately, my wife had had a normal upbringing, is emotionally very smart, very, she's extroverted. She did everything, which is what normally happens in families anyway, right? Normally it's a mother anyway, right? right? So I don't think we were that, even though I was emotionally stunted, I probably wasn't that different to a lot of men anyway, right? Because a lot of men are emotionally stunted even if they don't, don't admit it, right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. It actually kind of reminds me of. Now I have a better answer for the value question because, um, <laughs> at, well, so I have this complex, and and I've recently kind of like the Starburst Starburst hierarchy. I've kind of recently yeah. coined this as the Chick Fil A complex, and and I'm not bashing Chick Fil A by any stretch of the imagination, but and and I'll, I'll try to be brief. But that's okay, right? <laughs> but people love Chick Fil A. And it's not necessarily, to me, and just as an outsider, it's not necessarily because the product is that amazing, it's because of what they compare it to, right? right. It's, it's because they're not McDonald's, they're not Burger King, it's, it's because they're really what we should expect from a hospitality food place that we revere them. And I think that a lot of times we do that and, and you bring up um, just the simple thing of fatherhood. Like if you're a father out there that, that picks up the kids from daycare and does basic chores and stuff that have been gender rolled for, for many, many years, you're seen as excelling. And I think that's bullshit. Like I think that like the, the, the value should be what do you do beyond what's seen as, wow, you're lucky, you know, like what, what do you do beyond that? And that's something that, that I strive to do but it, it just kind of reminds me of that is I think that sometimes we, we have this perception of, or we, we adore these things that when you take a step back, it's like, no, that's just what we should expect from somebody or from a business or something like that. But like, I, I don't want to sit here and heap praise on Chick-fil-A for doing what they, what everybody should be doing to go above and beyond, you know? Yeah. That's what they're paid to do. Right. All right. So you got kids, right? I don't. Oh, Not yet. okay. Not I, yet. I, have, I have fur kids. But. 
You what? I have fur kids, dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. That's, that's my... I like looking at his eyes and he said fur kids. Yeah. Like, that's, my, that's my uh, toe in the water, you know. Right, right. But, uh, but I am one of three and I, I did have a loving uh, family growing right. up, so... We'll see. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well... Okay. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay. This thanks was for great. having me, Colin. Thanks, and, Michael. Yeah. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And mad thanks to our team that makes this all possible. James Leitner, Sarah Lins, Allison Madrino, and, of course, my co-host, Michael Dees. Yes, sir. Who will be on time next time. Yeah, most of the time I am. Most of the time I'm already here. Right Depends now. on the side hustle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and podcast fam, if you were driving and didn't have a chance to write down the information of our incredible sponsors that make this show possible, don't worry, we've got your back. Just go to whoagnv.com forward slash sponsors or simply click the links in the show notes of the episode and we will they're right there for you. That's right. And before we wrap up the show, thank you to Kyle Cohen and team over at Leonardo's Pizza Mill Hopper. Leonardo's, uh, Leonardo's Mill Hopper offers the same classic food, family-friendly atmosphere, local beers on draft and in cans, and they even have a beautiful upgraded wine selection. During these times, they're implementing safety precautions, of course, with masks for guests not at a table, masks for all team members, limited seating, and these guys even purchased some UV sanitizing lights to make sure the restaurant is virus-free. It's Going above yeah, and beyond, exactly. baby. That's exactly right. Um, so we love their heart and their heart for Gainesville. They're so supportive of us and this community, so please uh, support them. How can you do that? Order takeout or delivery on leonardosmillhopper.com through 352 delivery, or, or three sorry, or through 352 delivery. Also, they are now catering orders. Uh, you can treat your office to some delicious pies and garlic rolls from our friends at Leonardo's Mill Hopper by going through ezcater.com. That's E, the letters E, Z, cater.com. Or you can order dinner tonight from them uh, at leonardosmillhopper.com or by phone at 352-376-2001. Love Kyle. Get- Love Leo's Mill Hopper. Love those garlic rolls. You guys order from Leonardo's Mill Hopper and get, uh, get pizza for the entire team, y'all. Do it this week. Support Leonardo's Mill Hopper. We're super grateful. Who doesn't for love an office pizza party, man? And of course, when you call them, say, I heard you on the WHOA GNV podcast. The podcast bring you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. <laughs> Give us your best whoa. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye. Okay. <laughs>